0: Hi, this is John Grisham. Welcome to this week's episode where I sat down with John Meacham and Ann Patchett to discuss their writing styles and other elements of how they approach the creative process. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this special series. Hi, this is John Grisham on Book Tour, and today we are in Nashville, Tennessee, at Parnassus Books, where I'll be talking with my favorite historian, John Meacham, and also Ann Patchett, who happens to own the bookstore. Here's Ann. Hey, welcome. Hey, happy to be here. Uh, thank you, folks, for coming. Uh, this is the uh, ninth stop on my 13-stop world tour, the first book tour in uh, 25 years, and um, i delighted to be in Nashville uh, at uh, this beautiful bookstore, Ann's store, and um, I have been asked many times why I decided to go out and go to bookstores and... Sign books for hours after hours and tour and all that after 25 years of hiding on the farm. And, um, and I really don't know the answer to that question except I, I kind of got bored. I got tired of sitting around the house. And, um, and it's, it's nice to get out and see great bookstores, independent bookstores, and meet you folks. And thank you for, um, for buying the books and enjoying the books over the years and uh, to give something back. So I'm delighted to be here. Question for you, dear.
1: Um, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Wait, wait, oh, I no, mean,
0: it's a podcast. You can, you can do anything. Yeah. There's no script. There's no schedule. There's no rules. Because wanna...
1: this connects to what you were just saying, so I don't want to lose it. Um, I, I read your book, and I really enjoyed it. But it, it does seem clear to me that you haven't been in a bookstore for 25 years. Because the book is largely about a bookseller who wears suits and ties every day, who reads the backlist of every author who comes to visit, who doesn't seem to have any staff whatsoever, who drinks cappuccino, who throws giant dinner parties for every author who comes to town and then has sex with them. I would like to say, as a bookseller, who is your model for this sexy... I've been to, I go to bookstores all over this country every time I have a book. I've never met this guy.
0: You think that's fictional? Yeah. <laughs> he also has a long uh, lunch every day with a bottle of wine, and he takes a nap in his apartment above the bookstore. Uh, and that, that's where, for years, he met the young female writers who came through for all the sex you were and talking
1: about. And he's a multimillionaire with a vault well, downstairs. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, What's up with that, John? It's, it's called fiction, I mean, you know, <laughs> Let it go, okay? It's fiction. Okay. Uh, he's kind of a roguish character who, uh, who's kind of a playboy, um, and he loves to read. He reads everything. He reads four books. Talk about fiction. Four books a week? I can't get four bu- books a year, you know, uh, uh, finished. I start three a week and can't finish, finish anything. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a beach book, okay? Year, years ago, when my first novels came out, the firm, especially Pelican Brief and Client, the critics, uh, you know, had a field day ripping them about. You know how much fun that is. But there were, there were often these comments about these are just beach books. You know, summer beach books. And so I finally said over the years, okay, I'll show you a beach book. And so <laughs> Camino Island is a beach book published on June the sixth. Destined for the beach, and that's all it is. Lighten up, it's fiction. It's set
1: at a beach. Well, just as a bookseller, I just wanted to know if you wanted to know how things work around here.
0: Well, yeah, I I mean, I know know quite a few booksellers, and it's a tough life. It's a tough business. And uh, that's one reason I'm uh, out here on the tour is to uh, visit great bookstores and also say thanks for you guys for what you do.
1: Well, and thank you because... you, you are keeping bookstores in business, you and J.K. Rowling, and it, it, it's really true. It makes a huge difference to get a John Grisham novel and rack up the sales.
0: It's, it's a public service. It, it, it,
1: <laughs> we as take John it as said. such.
0: Yes. Uh, I met you two months ago. Uh, you were at Montpelier, Madison's home in uh, Virginia, right. stalking your next uh, subject. Uh, so uh, tell us about your project.
2: I'm writing about James and Dolly Madison. Uh, and as Anne said, I am trying to get rap lyrics uh, embedded. <laughs> and as you can tell from the way I look, I have a lot of experience with rap. Um, uh, great fun. Uh, the way I pick my nonfiction subjects uh, is, is there someone on the great historical stage who... Is not as prominent in the popular imagination and the popular conversation as they should be, and uh, James Madison is literally and figuratively overshadowed by almost everybody around him. Uh, they say he was five six. That is, uh, that's like a gimme putt. Uh, that's a pretty big uh, roundup, uh, uh, and he was he's trapped between Washington and Hamilton and Jefferson, who are all wonderful uh, characters. But here's the guy who did a lot of the work. And I got to say, thank God for Dolly, uh, who uh, is was the most important woman in American life, really, for 20 years. Uh, She was the primary hostess in Washington under Jefferson and Madison for 16 years. Uh, Fabulous woman, Virginia Quaker. Uh, who was a little like um, Dorothea in Middlemarch? She knew she was supposed to be serious, uh, but loved jewels, loved uh, dresses, uh, and uh, so there are great conflicts and um, hoping to uh, put Madison, give Madison a, a little bit of public exposure. And it comes out when. Well, after this afternoon, well, why you, uh, why you probably a lot longer because it was a rough one. Uh, uh, it's
1: lovely when people ask you when your book that you haven't written is coming out. It's sweet, out.
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, wait, let
1: me go in the back and check really yeah. quick.
2: Yeah, particularly when we're here selling his. I That's just nice. just tell them, you know, it's coming uh, out
0: in October. I, I, I hadn't Jeff, started the book but
1: you mean ever. that.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, 19 or 20, uh, I think, and... Um, God, why so long, John? I mean, it's just, Well, some of us actually, you know, write about what happened. Um, uh, so... And,
0: and, and you have to be accurate. And you can and see I why... I you, don't have to be and, accurate. And
2: given our relative audiences, you can see why I made that choice. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, no, it takes forever because, uh, you do have to get everything exactly right. And particularly if you're like me, I mean, I... I'm a historian. I'm really a biographer, but I'm, I'm not a president. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a PhD. Uh, I thought a BA from Sewanee was all anyone ever needed, uh, and I've been, that's been proven in my case anyway. Um, for those of you who don't fully know the University of the South, it's best understood as a combination of Downton Abbey and Deliverance, um, and um, so it takes forever because if I succeed with what I'm doing, the nicest thing people say to me, and I've heard it at least twice uh, in my 20 years of doing this, is it read like a novel. And the other thing, do y'all get this uh, backhanded, passive-aggressive compliment? My favorite one is, you know, I knew I was going to see you or a friend will say, oh, I got your book. Uh, And I picked it up because I, you know, to be nice. And you know, it wasn't bad. (laughs) And... You have to accept that compliment because it's so goddamn rude uh, on the on the front end.
0: And what are you gonna do? Fight with them? Exactly. Well, exactly. You can't insult them.
2: No. And there was I... this great line: uh, Winston Churchill, you know, who was the highest-paid journalist in the world at one point, which is like being the best restaurant in a hospital. But uh, so he wrote tons of books, uh, something like forty, I think. And uh, at one point, and he would send them out uh, to all his friends and wide political acquaintances. And uh, uh, Lloyd George wrote him back once saying, Winston, thank you so much for your new book. I have put it on the shelf with all the others. Uh, So a lot of them were books that if you put them down, you really couldn't pick them back up.
0: Uh, It's called Reader's Block. I heard that today for the first time. Uh, One of you guys mentioned Reader's Block. I've never heard Reader's Block before. I have to
2: put one story on the record, though, uh, quickly, which was arguably, I have no, I am an Episcopalian and we we sort of barely account as Christians anymore. Um, there are eight of us and probably the other six are here. But, um, um, when I think about humility, so in 2009, I was on my way at the national book festival to give my talk about Andrew Jackson and a woman ran up to me, which doesn't happen enough as a matter of a, <laughs> And the fact that she had to put her walker to the side is not a relevant <laughs> detail to this story. And she said, oh, my God, it's you. And I said, well, yes. You know, <laughs> Existentially speaking, that's hard to argue with. She said, will you wait right here? I want you to sign your new book. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I stood there under that tent. And I was thinking, this is what life is supposed to be like. Women are supposed to run up to you. You know, They're supposed to recognize you. I've done everything right. This is, this is it. I've reached the pinnacle. Hand to God, she brought back the runaway jury. So somewhere in America, there's a woman with a forged copy of the runaway jury. I signed your name because I didn't want to embarrass her.
1: It happens to me every time I go out. Yeah.
2: I said he's taller, better looking, and richer,
0: but... uh, Here we are. Okay, enough of that. Um, (laughs) What are you working on? I am writing a novel. You don't really work in the bookstore. I I mean, you're here occasionally.
1: I'm here a lot. A lot. But usually I'm in the back hiding. Uh, But yeah, I I don't have a job here. I am the only person involved in the store who doesn't get a paycheck. I'm not on staff.
0: Okay, Uh, for the benefit of uh, those who don't know the story, uh, briefly tell us the story of why you decided to buy a bookstore.
1: Well, um, in 2011, is that right? 2011, uh, probably at the end of 2010, the two big stores in town, this is the fast version, Davis Kid, which was in the mall, and Borders, which was over at Vanderbilt, (laughs) both 30,000 square feet, both closed within six months of each other, figured somebody would open a bookstore and nobody opened a bookstore. I was introduced to Karen Hayes by a mutual friend. We had lunch on April 30th, 2011, and we opened this store on November 15th of 2011, which is just to say, yeah. Um, And if you look at the seam in the ceiling, the people on that side are sitting in Tan 2000, and the people on this side are sitting in Pickles and Ice Cream Maternity. Um, But we started this store. We did not buy the store. We we started this from scratch. And the deal was Karen and I have a 50-50 partnership. She does all the work, and I pay for everything. And it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful marriage. We stay out of each other's way. We respect each other. um, And everything that is good and right in this store is Karen. But I am. Yeah. um, But I am the person. I'm the person who knows the authors. And if I don't know your author, uh, I know your publicist on and on.
0: But you have uh, received a ton of publicity.
1: A ton. tons of wonderful press
0: yeah, for doing this yes. you're the face of the bookstore I am and it's wonderful what you've done thank you I mean to open the place and it's been, to, no it's
1: really fabulous yeah and you know what's really great is it used to be people would come up to me in Whole Foods and say I love Bel Canto and I don't really know what to do with that Thank you, but I want to get away from you. But now people come up to me in Whole Foods and they say, thank you so much for this bookstore. My kids love the bookstore. We spend all our time in the bookstore. And I can say from my heart, like it's given me a way to talk to strangers. Thank you for coming to this bookstore and supporting it and being a part of it. What are you reading that is a great dialogue to have right. instead of, you know, I want to talk to you about your work. You should yeah. open a bookstore, sir. I was going to ask but, you, John, But listen, what, you, what sir,
0: about, you should you? not open a bookstore. You <laughs> You're not cut out for
2: retail, you know? that. I, I, there there's so many. Well, Michael Beschloss, my friend, and I have a bet. At what point will books we write just go straight to large print? So, uh, so I'd have to do it in an assisted living facility anyway. But.
0: We could do it together, you know. Uh, we could, yeah. Well, uh, the, two, runa- the runaway two, bush. Two Johns. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not doing retail Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, back to my question. What are you working on?
1: I'm writing a novel. Um, it's called Mamie or the Dutch House. My goal is to have it finished by December of 2018. And then much more interesting than that is after that, I am writing a very small book called Vote, uh, that will come out in time for the centennial anniversary of the suffrage, women's 19th Amendment, women getting the vote in August of 2020. Because I am a bookseller, it will come out in May of 2020, so I can hit Mother's Day and graduation. <laughs> and then August, we will have the anniversary, and then the next presidential election in November of 2020.
0: Mamie and the Dutch House. Yeah. What, can you tell us what it's about?
1: Um, it's about a woman who is driven mad by wealth. A woman who cannot bear wealth. There you go.
0: So you don't don't mind talking about your work in progress? No. Some writers refuse to do it. I know. Some talk their books to death.
1: Yeah. Uh, I got it down to a sentence. You know, the bottom line is this is literary fiction. No one is actually interested. I mean, people say, oh, I can hardly wait for your new book, but life went on very nicely with one Harper Lee book, you know? It doesn't really matter. Come on,
0: Anne. People want to see your next book. Don't, don't, don't downplay it, okay? You're very popular. You're one of the few. You know what? You're one of the few. Like you're
1: throwing my curve off. I'm popular when you're not here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're a literary author who sells books. I am. One of the few. And that, that discussion happens twice in Camino Island when these writers get together for long dinners with the booksellers and they discuss books and writing and literature and so the argument is is it literary is it genre does it sell who you know where's the dividing line why can't you do both why can't you write liter- great literary fiction and find a big audience and ve- and i make the point in the book very few people can do that but well, you have
1: yeah again big audience is relative i listen i won I won it all. I, I have been as lucky as anyone could be, and I'm really happy. But I do think different people win in different categories.
0: So. Let's talk about your book sales. You wanna, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just kidding. No, a uh, question for you. Yes, sir. Um, so, the Madison book will take you how long to research and write? Four and a
2: half to five years.
1: And do you have help?
2: Do you have a research assistant? I have a wonderful man uh, who is my great archival uh, digger. Uh, He works for David McCullough. He works for Michael uh, Beschloss, whom I mentioned, Devin Thomas. Uh, He's just this amazing figure uh, who knows the Library of Congress inside and out. And um, I've never been able to, and I have colleagues who can, I've never been able to have anyone sort of write a memo about something or do research in that way. I have to, for better or for worse, uh, I have to take the original documents and spin them through my own art. So I don't have um, that kind of research assistance. Now, at the very end, when I panic, uh, and do y- y'all know Moccasin Bend, the mental hospital down in Chattanooga. I have a room every four years um, <laughs> where I go. I I do hire the smartest people I can find, usually students I've taught along the way, to punch as many holes as they can. Uh, So I spend an enormous amount of money and time on fact-checking. Do you do your own index? No. No, I do my own footnotes. Okay, Uh, And I I, I, I sort of write two books. One is for normal people, and then the, the source notes themselves, which often run well over 100 pages, Uh, are for the scholars and I feel that in a way as as a debt because there are people who spend their whole life working on one year of the war of 1812 and I'm going to come through and breeze in and do that in three pages uh, as part of a larger historical narrative The, the point of which I mean the reason I do what I do is not because these figures from the past were so much better than we are but because they were in many ways just like us. And they were driven by sin and shortcoming and they had their vices and their virtues, but they did manage to leave the the nation and the world a little bit better off. And so the human drama of that, what is it like to sit behind that desk? What is it like to have ultimate authority is to me the inherent drama. Um, You know, I I think Shakespeare wrote about kings for a reason. You don't have to explain why you're doing it. Uh, They have ultimate authority. And so so I I feel an obligation to... Give as much exposure because again, I, like Anne, uh, I won the nonfiction lottery in life. Um, the, the fact that I can make a living doing what I do is is an incredibly incredibly great gift, and um, it is a li- my house is a little bit like The Shining meets C-SPAN. Uh, you know, I, I, I talk to dead people; they talk back. It's it's kind of scary.
1: I thought you just meant it was really big. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a question for you, uh, as long as we're talking about research. What do you know about the vaults at Princeton? And what is your connection, your spiritual connection or whatever to Fitzgerald? And do you, did you think about Gatsby yesterday? I always, on the 21st of June, think about Gatsby, because most of the action in Gatsby happens on the longest day of the year. So talk about the vaults at Princeton and just why you made those decisions. That opening chapter is, you start off with such a bang.
0: Well, to answer your question, I know nothing about the vaults at Princeton. Um, and nothing about booksellers. I couldn't go to the library. Yeah, it's, it's fiction. Again, you lighten up, man. Um, I couldn't walk in the, Bri- the Firestone Library at, at Princeton and say, look, I'm, I'm researching a novel about stealing your most prized uh <laughs> So can I have access and see them and let's see the vault and the security and, you know, let me do that. I wasn't going to do that. Uh, I've never seen that library and I deliberately stayed You've over.
1: You've never there. seen the library?
0: No. No, and I, I did not want to go. I've been on campus Princeton twice in my life and I didn't want to go uh, because I, I didn't want to be accurate, you know. Uh, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to be too. John. Think
1: about this, man.
0: No, just I, think no, about it. If you no, don't
1: I, check, you don't need to
0: be accurate. No, listen. I, I think just disclaim- time to start smoking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I put disclaimers in all of my books, even my legal thrillers. Don't, don't believe this stuff, okay? I mean, don't, don't think the law is accurate. Don't think the politics are accurate. Don't, don't do that, okay? But in, we're talking about a, a sensational crime here, the stealing of manuscripts that are uh, priceless, uh, especially to Princeton a University with a $20 billion endowment. And it's true. They're there. They're in a vault somewhere. I don't know where in the library. They are contr- The air, heat, lights, all controlled. Fitzgerald wrote all five books uh, on some cheap paper that aged badly. And when Princeton got them in 1950 from his only child, they realized this stuff is going to deteriorate. So they took all these great uh, steps to preserve the originals. And they're, I- I'm assuming they're in a vault. They could be in a, the attic. I don't know where they are, okay? Again, I didn't go there. And and didn't again. I faked it. Okay, what do I know about I stealing did books? A very okay, good but, job. You, but now this is interesting because uh,
2: when I was writing about Thomas Jefferson, I begged to be out, to be allowed to spend the night in Jefferson's bedroom because I wanted to wake up not with, with the full experience that he had, uh, <laughs> although I was open to it. Um, um, let's just get that out of the way quickly. This is not live. We can cut this out. of Okay, good, me. good. <laughs> My wife is not here, as you can tell. Um, uh, but I wanted to know what it was like when he woke up in that alcove bed. I wanted to know what the light was. And that's so, in a, it, I think of that as using novelistic techniques in in nonfiction. Uh, Did Tom, they let
1: you sleep over?
2: Yeah, I slept, yeah. Um, I can t- I-, I can tell you read that part of the book. Uh, the um, um, I love Bell Commonwealth.
1: <laughs> I read all of the Bush book. Was
2: good. Thank you, dear. No, uh, yeah, they did. Uh, but but but, but you know, Tom Wolfe, right? Is, is starts he he reports and then writes. Um, you started out doing this because. You knew the South from growing up. The, the first book, the the practice of law. Um, I think you're. I, I I detect some poor mouthing here. I think you're all shucksing this too much.
0: Well, I, I don't all shucks a lot of the legal stuff because it has to be accurate. Because I get, I get a lot of um, letters from lawyers who find mistakes in my books, and they are judges, and and I do make a lot of mistakes. But fortunately, most of my readers are not lawyers. Uh, and they don't catch stuff like that. So uh, I I, do, I try to be fairly accurate to a certain. I hate to research. Okay, I really hate research. And I wrote one nonfiction book, uh, The Innocent Man. It took me eighteen months to to research. And I, at one point, I was reviewing ten thousand documents from prison records, and I thought, I can't, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is really some. This
2: is why you started writing novels, so you wouldn't have to get to do away that. from stuff like yeah.
0: this. Yeah. And um, I, finally, I finally got the book written, and I said, you know, never again will I write nonfiction because it's too much work. And I, I'm at a point where I don't like to work a whole lot. I can write a novel in six months. Uh, that book took uh, 18 months to research and write, which is not a long time, as you know.
2: Now, Anthony Trollope had a rule. He wrote 2,000 words a day, 1,000 on the train going to work, 1,000 on the way back. It produced 53 novels. Do you have a, do you have a quota per day when you're in the zone?
0: Not a, not a quota, uh, it's usually about 1,000, sometimes 1,500 per day, over a span of three to four hours in the morning uh, when I'm working every day, when I'm, when I, and it takes me six months. Uh, but again, it's, you know, it's fiction. I don't have to worry about being accurate. Um, and, and with The Innocent Man, uh, I also knew that um, some of the bad guys were still alive, and uh, they may take offense to what I wrote about them. <laughs> You write about dead folks. They, they, they can't sue you, right? That's the great thing. That's true, although
2: I did write about George Herbert Walker Bush and when his son had access to Guantanamo, so that was a little <laughs> risky.
1: And, you know, this it's really tricky because you don't have to be factual, but there is a way in fiction in which you have to be absolutely accurate. You have to be consistent. You make the world, you make the laws of that world, and you have to follow through exactly. You have to be convincing. So it's, what you're doing is, in a weird way, maybe even harder. Because I read that opening chapter thinking that you knew what you were talking about. I didn't doubt you at all. You have to make sure that your readers don't doubt you.
0: The, the key word there is convincing. It has to be plausible. It has to be, belie- even though it's fiction, it has to be believable and workable and convincing. Absolutely. What, whatever you're writing, okay? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that, okay, I did a little bit of research for the opening chapter, but not a whole lot. Um, I mean, I, ha- I, didn't, I had to learn, there's a dog on the stage. I had to learn, um, I had to learn how to, to operate a cutting torch and drill bits and things like that and security cameras and, and how, to, how to reroute through the security system to turn off security. And uh, You know, but that, it, it wasn't, too, wasn't too deep. When I normally do research uh, for the legal stuff, uh, there's a great law school at UVA, and I'll hire a, a law student to do my legal research. And these kids pr- get, email me these beautiful memos about the law, and they're well written. I just take the memos and plug them into the novel. And <laughs> and so people comment, he's a legal genius. He's, he, he's, his knowledge of the law is like and an a encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm paying them, they can't sue me. Oh. I had this thing about law. Have you been sued, John? I've never been sued. Okay. Have uh, you been sued? Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> I got th- Amateur hour, Mr. I Meacham. Say, I'm sorry.
0: I, I, I got three lawsuits from the innocent man. Uh, oh, yeah. and, we, and we kind of thought they were coming. Uh, it took a, two or three years to get rid of them. Uh, we won. I've never lost a lawsuit. Um, Do you, are you responsible for that or does your publisher pay for it? We, we uh, layer up with insurance and uh, I'm, I'm heavily insured against defamation, <laughs> as is my... And, and they know me. They, they buy a lot of insurance yeah, because yeah. I'm out there like a, like a wild... And she's making yeah, it yeah, up. Yeah. yeah. Making it up. Yeah. Uh, what happens a lot of times with me, there's so many manuscripts floating around, you know, that don't get published and they're all over New York. And so I'll write a scene in a book that's similar to what somebody else wrote in a novel 10 years ago. You know, something that's pretty accurate, okay? And you, you worry about these things. Well, they'll hire a lawyer, yeah. And they'll send us a letter, you know, and we'll get the letter, and the letter is threatening all this bad stuff. And um, we respond, and we always manage to, you know, shoo them away uh, because the litigation is – these are <laughs> these are New York lawyers who um, are very expensive but very good, and they deal with this stuff all the time. I got sued uh, uh, for the chamber many years ago for that. Somebody claimed I'd copied their their unpublished novel. And I mean, yeah, it's part of it. Steven Spielberg once said that one lawsuit per movie is a pretty good average. And uh, that's... that's I'm, kind of, a, I'm kind of disappointed in you myself. Feel left, you feel left out? <laughs> Support for Book Tour with John Grisham comes from Audible. With Neely in the front seat and Paul in the back, they sped away from downtown in a long white Ford with bold lettering along the doors, announcing that the car was a property of the sheriff. On the main highway... Mal pushed the accelerator and flipped the switch, turning on the flashing red and blue lights. No sirens, though. Once everything was properly configured, he cocked his weight to one side, picked up his tall styrofoam cup of coffee, and laid a limp wrist over the top of the wheel. They were doing 100 miles an hour. If that story from John Grisham's Bleachers made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible
2: book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com slash Grisham. That's audible.com slash Grisham.
0: I got a question for you. Yeah. You've written about Jackson, Big Bush, Madison, uh, Jefferson. Jefferson. If you could write about anybody, who would you write about? Not necessarily a president. Well, I've been doing it. Uh,
2: I've never I've been lucky in that... Uh, I'll take six months, usually partly on book tour to try to figure out the next book. And so I've ridden up to a couple of topics pretty close and then decided for various reasons not to do them. Uh, but all of these folks that I've written about, uh, I've, I've loved doing it. Um, because again, they were all flawed, flawed men trying to do, usually trying to do the right thing. Um, the last project was particularly interesting. I, I dealt with President Bush Sr., uh, who turned 93 this week. Um, he's never gonna die uh, at all. On his 90th, when he jumped out of the airplane, he, uh, Barbara had him land at their parish church up in Kennebunkport, so if he died, it'd be easy to bury him. Um, she's always supportive that way. Um, uh, but for 20 years, uh, I interviewed him for nine. And uh, wait, the book took 20 years. I, the deal we struck, it was supposed to be posthumous, but again, he's never going to die. Uh, and um, uh, so when I, the deal, and they're they're more you know, they're more candid because uh, he was more candid because he didn't think he'd ever read it. And also, if they don't think there's a um, a a deadline, uh, they're more open, uh, I found. So um, that was a different enterprise than Jackson or uh, Jefferson or Roosevelt or Churchill. Those were historical conversations and historical narratives, uh, images in your mind. We all have a picture of Winston Churchill. We all have a picture of Franklin Roosevelt, of of Thomas Jefferson, of Andrew Jackson. We We all know kind of what we think about them. So my goal is to tell you a story about something that you think you know and surprise you. The Bush book was different because this was the first one. I was the first guy to really go through all the archives to get his presidential diary. Um, uh, Mrs. Bush has kept a diary every day since 1948. So they have been married, by the way, 72 years. And when I was out talking about the book in a room like this, I think it was in Minnesota, a man and his wife were down here. And I said that and he said, Jesus Christ. (laughs) You have a long ride home, buddy. Uh, but I, uh, but she was going to seal the diary for 50 years after she died. And so I went to her and begged and said, look, I, you, please let me read this. Because if you put a really intelligent woman at the highest levels of American life for 50 years, which is what's been going on, it was going to be interesting. And particularly if it's Barbara Bush, who has no filter now and didn't have much of a much one then. Um, and when... Uh, George W. Bush found out that his mother had given me uh, his diary. He said, she gave you what? <laughs> that, that, that is not good for me. <laughs> Mom and I didn't always see eye to eye. I gave her white hair. So... Uh, I spend a lot of time with these people. Once, I can do this hours. But
1: once the presidential scholar always a presidential scholar like do you think that you'll jump the tracks and write a book about elizabeth taylor at some point
2: you know i almost i I haven't told anyone i don't think keith knows i don't think my wife knows this i almost uh jumped the tracks as you said and thought about writing a book about elvis um because um I, i got interested in the sociology it's his 40th anniversary of his death this this august and um so i i can't remember why this got in my head but I started reading the sociology on this. And basically, Elvis is a Christ figure in sociological terms. People dress up like him. They sing things that he sang. They talk. Uh, they they uh, think some people think he's still alive. Um, fortunately, Jesus didn't come from Memphis. Uh <laughs> which Tupelo. is which is good yeah but this is i'm trying to make grisham feel okay um uh, so uh, so i thought about that but uh but then i sobered up and uh I I, I I hope so um the only non-presidential book i've done was on religious liberty uh which i wrote at a time uh 2006 when the culture wars were particularly ferocious uh the anti-gay marriage stuff was going on the intelligent design debates Uh, a lot of people, uh, Pat Robertson issued his spot against Hugo Chavez saying that God would want him dead. Um, and so I thought we needed to sort of recover the right role for religion in the conversation.
0: Did you have to go to Bush senior and sort of, uh, convince him to cooperate? We, it's lost to history.
2: Um, we, I, I, I first went up there in 1998, went to Walker's point and, um, uh i was at newsweek then uh this is like talking about the peloponnesian war um but the news magazines mattered he liked having somebody if he wanted to send a message here or there uh the sun was running so um uh, and then about 2002 or so he's i asked i said is there anything in the vault?" you know, every presidential family still has a box somewhere, even the Jackson. So uh, out at Cleveland hall, across from the hermitage, the, the John and Janice Donaldson had a box of Jackson letters that nobody had ever seen. Um, so there's always something in a garage somewhere. And so I said, is there anything? And he said, he said, well, I got that diary I kept. I was like, oh shit. Oh, I'm free, sir. Um, uh, and uh, he said, you want to see it? I was like, well, you know, I'm, I, you know, sure. Uh, and he, it'll be the last presidential diary because of special prosecutors and that sort of thing. Um, and my God, can, can you imagine the Trump diary? Um, dear Donald, here's what I think about myself today. Um... um Low-hanging fruit, but fruit tastes good. Um, and he he had dictated into a tape recorder for all four years. Uh, and one of the things that was so fascinating about it, it was, it was a little bit because I listened to all the tapes, and it was like writing a biography of Dana Carvey. <laughs> you know, I was like, not going to do it. You know? <laughs> um, so... I w- so I said, I sir, this is a, it, it's an amazing document. And so I said, yes, I would like to... Pu-. And my, my initial thought was that I would publish the diary in sort of the way the Johnson tapes were done, you know, sort of annotate it. And then um, I thought, no, I mean, here's a man who, on his 18th birthday, joined the United States Navy, became the lung- youngest flying officer, won the Distinguished Flying Cross. At the age of 20, he was shot down over the Pacific, lost two of his best friends. Uh, and govern the country in a way that now feels as though, you know, the, the movement from George H.W. Bush to Trump disproves Darwin. <laughs> um, so. Um, that's a, I stole that from Henry Adams, but if you're going to steal, steal from Henry Adams uh, is the basic goal. And uh, so I thought it was worth a worth a big book. And I, I love doing it. I got to tell you one quick thing. Uh, when Trump came here um, in Mar- on March 15th uh, to lay a wreath at the Hermitage and was right there with him. Uh, no. Not <laughs> right. uh, and so I was thinking when he was coming to town, I was thinking, well, should I do something? Should I write something? So I wrote him an open letter. And I called the the Tennessee and I said, do you want this? And they very generously ran it. It was the whole front page. It was great. It was very generous of them to do. And it was basically, I was arguing that if you're going to embrace Jackson, by the way, he thought it was Michael, (laughs) Uh, but he 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 thought he was going to Neverland. He was looking for the llamas, you know, where's that fentanyl? Anyway, um... So I, so I really, if you're going to embrace him, embrace everything about him. You know, he was a chess player. He was more careful. He knew his vices, and he turned them into virtues. And uh, so the, ne- the next day, it went out on the interweb. Uh, and President Bush was senior, was in the hospital, and obviously had a lot of free time. And so my phone rang, and it was President Bush. And he said, I read your letter to Jackson. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I said thank you, Mr. President. I'm glad to hear from you. Um, it's really sweet of you to call, and I'm thinking, you know, he, it's okay for him to say that to me. But what if he says it to someone else, and they're going to think the old man's losing it? Da, da, da. And I said, but you know, actually, it just to be clear, you know, it was actually it was to Trump about Jackson. And he said, yeah, but Jackson will pay more attention. <laughs> He's just fine at 93. <laughs> are you going to do uh, W? Uh, we are going to we are in conversations about a 20 year cycle. Uh, if he'll talk and be open and um, uh, it takes about 25 years after somebody leaves office to really render a historical verdict. Uh, that's why I was able to do Bush when I was. Um when the passion's cool and you get get to really see how things settled. Um, I think he's a fascinating man. I think he's, I think he's uh, inexplicable outside the context of Texas politics. Uh, He always wanted to do what his father hadn't done, which was win in Texas. And um, uh, so, yeah.
1: Question for you. Um, Law. How long did you practice and what kind of law did you practice? And do you ever miss it for a second?
0: I practiced for 10 years, and uh, for those of you who've read The Time to Kill, that was sort of me, uh, struggling lawyer in a small town in Mississippi, dreaming of a big case. I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I wanted to be in the courtroom and try big cases. And, you know, pretty young wife and young family and and no money, but um, dreaming that dream. So um, it was autobiographical in, in many ways. Um I only I only did it for ten years about halfway through that brief career, I got the bug to write, and I'd never thought about it before i I'd, I'd never studied writing or or dreamed of being a writer, but I was inspired by something I saw in a courtroom to create this drama and I decided to try and write it and um Once I got that bug and I, once I, the pages started piling up, uh, I really became disenchanted with the law and um, I was dreaming of you know writing a book and Maybe selling a few copies and then maybe expanding the readership and you know, you know bringing books out every year. and maybe after ten years, I could write full time. That was the dream. was to be able to write full time. Yeah. And um, it happened sooner than I thought it was going to happen, but um, no, I have never thought about going back to the courtroom um, or to be involved in politics as a candidate. I've done that before and and never really enjoyed any of that. so. Uh, I feel very lucky that l- later in life, when I was 30 years old, I found a new career and um, it's been okay.
1: So there's a legend among booksellers about you. And I always wondered if this was true, that you put a time to kill in the trunk of your car and you went around and took it to stores. Karen, you know this story? Do people know this? Yeah. And that the stores that took the, that book and sold it for you were the ones that you were loyal to and went back and did promotion in those stores. Yeah. Uh,
0: what happened, they printed 5,000 hardback copies of A Time to Kill, and it was a small unknown publisher in New York that went bankrupt the following year. And I was dead broke when A Time to Kill came out, but I had more money than my publisher. And so they, uh, they could not promote me on the road. I bought 1,000 copies of the 5,000 copies and went to libraries and bookstores all over the Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, Louisiana, uh, trying to make something happen. And um, some of the stores said no. They didn't want to do it. That's fine. Some of the stores said yes. And years later, well, no, when the firm came out, uh, 18 months later. Yeah, not that many uh, years later. You know, looking back, it happened real fast. But the Time to Kill flopped, and, um, and you know, I, I was discouraged by that. At the same time, I was writing hard every day trying to finish The Firm. And I was, uh, I was encouraged to, to finish The Firm because my wife believed it was going to be a big book. And my agent in New York believed it was going to be a big book. Uh, far more commercial, far more accessible, far more popular than my first book. And I told, I told my wife several times, the first book flopped. If the second book flops, I'm going to forget this little secret hobby and uh, just be a lawyer or a judge or something, you, pres- you know, pursue that career. Because it, it was a lot of wasted, a lot of time that, uh, you know, that I, got, I, didn't li- I didn't like waking up at five in the morning to go to the office and write for a couple of hours, and that's what I was doing. Um, but when the firm came out, you know, suddenly, you know, a lot of bookstores wanted me to, to come. And um, I went to uh, a few with the firm. I went to, 25 years ago, I did the, the, the nationwide tour the 35 cities coast to coast and uh, uh, did not enjoy that. That's no way to have any fun. And I said, I'm not doing this again. And uh, for about 10 years, I would go to the same five stores in and, Mississippi. And what are they? Square Books in Oxford, Lemuria in Jackson, two of my favorite stores, uh, Burke's bookstore in Memphis, yeah. uh, uh, Reed's in Tupelo, and a bookstore in uh, Blyville, Arkansas. And those, yeah. those, those, those five booksellers were friends who had really worked hard with The Time to Kill. And it was easy to say, and, and back in those days, I would go there and we would sign for 12 or 15 hours. And, and that got old, um, so we cut it back and cut it back and cut it back. And so finally, I quit doing it all together. I still signed 2,000 books a year for each of those stores.
1: Okay, so since this new book has a lot to do with rare books and first editions, what do you think a signed first edition hardback of A Time to Kill is worth?
0: It all depends on the quality. Hi, first quality. uh, Pristine quality is uh, $4,000. Yeah. And the firm is $500. They put... (laughs) 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 Well, I'll buy it. I mean, I buy them all the time. (laughs) Do you do you remember what the first run of the firm was? Yeah, it was, it was 20, 20 or twenty five thousand copies of the firm, and they went back to press before publication. Yeah, the, the book had a lot of a lot of pressure behind it when it came out in March of uh, March of ninety one, and so a first edition of the firm is about five hundred bucks somewhere like that. But I, and I started collecting books about that time, and um, have mm. have a. Well, what's your best book? What do you love? Oh, I have um, I have two copies of the Sound of Fury. Uh, give Signed,
1: a, first no, edition.
0: No. No, the first edition, yeah. Okay, they're all first. I don't buy most of first editions. Okay, and uh, you know, there's a big market out there, and it's fun. It's fun to to collect them. It's fun to play the game, to watch the values of them, and that's why what was so much fun in Camino Island.
1: Yeah. Do you have a Catcher in the Rye?
0: No, no. Do you long
1: for that? Yeah. That, that's what the the guy has. It's is. about
0: seventy five thousand bucks for a pristine copy of. Um, catcher in the rye signed uh he signed almost no books right if there was a if there was a signed one by jd sounder we don't know what it'd be worth pristine copy probably seventy so five thousand
1: seventy five thousand unsigned, unsigned first signed, edition yeah, yeah. if you got a God. signed one it would wow. be at least
0: a hundred thousand dollars wow um i didn't have a car Karen,
1: let's get some of those <laughs> okay yeah
2: <laughs> what was the moment how did the firm happen commercially what was the road to Damascus that, that took it out?
0: You know, it was a lucky break that happened, and I had nothing to do with it. I didn't even know about it. Um, Those are the best kind. Yeah, I mean, it was just uh, it dropped in one Sunday morning with a phone call. Uh, I'd finished the book. I'd sent the book to New York in the fall of 1989. Time to kill had just come out, and you know, didn't went, went nowhere and um there there was no uh, stampede to buy the firm nobody wanted the firm. my agent showed it to a few publishers and my agent wanted me to make some changes i wasn't going to do that so we were sort of at a standstill this used to happen all the time in in the business in new york uh, these hollywood production companies and studios have scouts in new york it's a small business and the buzz will get out about a hot manuscript and they'll try to get a copy of it well this happened to the firm and a copy popped up in Hollywood, a bootleg copy. We knew nothing about it. And a guy made 20 copies out there and gave it to all the producers in the studios as though he, he was acting for me. And, again, we, didn't, we knew nothing about it. And he got nervous when they started bidding for it. And, um, and they, so we, they started bidding. And, and, and my agent then got involved in New York, and, and they're threatening lawsuits and all this stuff. So, but, anyway, um, no one bothered to call me. And, uh, we, and you just weren't
1: important in that process.
0: We, we were actually at church on Sunday morning when uh, I was at church. I went ahead early. My wife came running to me. She said, go home and call New York. And, I mean, these people don't work on weekends. They don't, it's published. They don't work on Fridays. You know, they, don't, they never work. <laughs> and uh, so I raised she She said, something big is about to happen. And I called my agent in New York, and he said, um, he said yeah, uh, we're, we're getting ready for the final round of bidding uh, for the film rights to the firm. And I said, what about the book rights? Uh, <laughs> I wrote the book. Well, you know, we haven't sold the book yet. He said, uh, he said, I can't talk right now. Um, we're, we're getting ready to bid. And he said, I, I need your authority to ha- take the highest offer from, uh, paramount pictures, uh, uh, Disney touchstone or universal pictures. Uh, and I said, well, okay. Um, just for fun, uh, how much money are we talking about? And he said, um, he said, I'm asking half a million and I hope to get 400,000. And I said, you want my authority to go do that? He said, yeah. I said, okay, you have it. And, And I went back to church and, uh, we sat through the worship service and it was one of those, uh, really long sermons. I mean, we had communion. Um, we had a bunch of visitors. Baptism. We had No, m- worse than that. We, <laughs> the baby dedication service, okay? They bring <laughs> bring all the babies out, okay, and line them up. Oh, and no. there's a young church. And we are just sitting there. You know, it's 12.15, 12.30. And we finally race home, and we live just down the street. And the phone's ringing, literally. I grabbed it, and it's my agent. He said, where you been? I said, I've been in church, okay, praying big time. And and he said, we just sold the film rights to the firm to uh, Paramount Pictures. And uh, I said, tell me what's going on. He said, well, they wanted this. And he he spent 20 minutes trying to tell me how he had negotiated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Buffaloed everybody and run over people. And finally I said, "Uh, okay, that's great. Uh, Just for fun, uh, (laughs) how much money did we get? And he said um, six hundred thousand dollars, and I said you were hoping to get four hundred thousand. How'd you get six hundred thousand? He said I'm just a hell of an agent.
2: <laughs>
0: I said Amen, brother. Amen, Amen, brother. And and I I said okay, let me call you back. And I Renee was sitting at the table, and we come. We both both come from very conservative Southern Baptist families, close knit bunches. Where there you never talked about money outside the family, there was no money inside the family. But you you, you never talked about money. Uh, it was it was uh, taboo, and we said to ourselves, "Look, you know this is a, <laughs> well, it's hard to believe, but we're we, we're never gonna we'll tell them we sold the film rights, but we're never gonna tell anybody about the money." Okay, this is this is uh, unbelievable, and the next day, uh, Paramount Pictures issued a press release. Where, <laughs> That cat was out of the bag. And so this long-winded answer, how did the firm wow. hit? Uh, to, uh, suddenly the publishers woke up. Everybody wanted the book. Yep. So we had another auction. We sold the hardcover, softcover rights to Doubleday. And then yeah. with the fascinating part, the following week we sold the British rights and the German rights, and the, the book just marched around the world language mm-hmm. by language, and we're sitting, my wife and I are in shock. And so the book, the book ha- had that kind of pressure behind it before it was published a year later. Wow. And it was, it was actually uh, kind of nerve-wracking to see if the book would actually sell with all that, with all that enthusiasm and all that money change in hands. And uh, it came out on March the 1st of 91 and quickly became popular and found an audience, and the rest is history. So it was a fluke. Yeah. It was a stolen have, manuscript. It was.
1: <laughs> have either of you read Stephen King's On Writing?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm in it.
1: I have
0: a starring role.
1: It is, yeah, well, I didn't know if you'd read it. Um, it's such a good book, and he has a really similar story about Carrie. You guys should all read. I'm not a, I, I can't read scary stuff, and so I don't read Stephen King, so I read on writing. And Can I tell the terrific. story?
0: terrific. Please do. Okay, I'll tell the story because the guy who who bought A Time to Kill after everybody had said no in Hollywood, I mean, in, in New York, um, I mean, every publisher had said no, The even the small ones had said no, but a guy named Bill Thompson was working at Winwood Press, and he saw the manuscript for uh, *A Time to Kill*, and it was a thousand pages long and it was a mess. And that's one reason they all passed on it. And he said yes, a thousand yeah, pages, yeah, for a debut novel. What were, were you thinking what was about? That thing? We we cut a third of it, okay. Uh, and he bought *A Time to Kill*. Uh-huh. Well, f- go back about thirty years, when he was a, a big time editor at Doubleday. And he got a manuscript in one day uh, from uh, somebody he had never heard of, and he read it and it was really good, but not quite good enough. And he wanted to contact the writer, but he didn't, the writer didn't have a telephone. It was Stephen King uh, who lived in a trailer yeah. writing on an old typewriter at night while Tabby worked at D- Dunkin' Donuts. And that was what they were eating, donuts. They, were, they didn't have a telephone. So he sent the book back uh, and he said, do you have anything else? By return mail, uh, there was another manuscript and it was good, but not quite goodness. This goes on for like four or five manuscripts. And finally the fourth or fifth one came in but by return mail. I mean, the guy's got it stacked up in the closet That's <laughs> Stephen King. And um, the fifth book I think was, uh, he read it and he said, this is it. This is good. And it was Carrie. And um, then they went back and he had to send Stephen King, a tele- the old uh, telegram, not, you know, not a fax machine, uh, not a phone call, and he said, "Double we'll, we'll, A will pay you twenty five hundred bucks for the rights to carry." And um, then they took the other four books and reworked them. Bill Thompson deal with Stephen, and it was uh, *Salem's Lot*, *The Shining*, uh, yeah. *Christine*. You know, *Arcujo*. I, I can't remember all the titles, but that's how Stephen King was discovered by the same guy. The same, the, same guy, Bill Thompson. God.
1: And they have a shrine to him on Madison Avenue now. Did he get J.K. Rowling, too?
0: No, I, I think the ending was not that good. I'm sorry. Uh, I think he kept a, he, he changed a lot of jobs along the way. So that was a great story. All right, we're going to take some questions from the crowd uh, for a few minutes uh, to see what you want to talk about. Anybody got a question? Yes, sir. Does it bother me when the movies change the story? Uh, no. No. Mm. <laughs> That's a really good answer. I don't. I don't make movies. Uh, I don't know how. I don't want to learn. It's. I have no interest. I would love to see all of them adapted to wonderful films because we all love good movies. Uh, but it's a whole different world. I'm not going there. A, a movie cannot change a word of a novel. The, it's What's written, your
1: best movie?
0: Uh, I prefer The Rainmaker because it was. It, it was Francis Ford Coppola. And he's—he was such a great filmmaker, and he wanted—he wanted me to hang around the set all day long and drink espresso with him. And, I, and I, you oh, know, oh, is
1: that where the espresso comes from?
0: The- <laughs> he drinks a lot of it, okay. And uh, and he said, "I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to stick to your story," and he did. And the cast was phenomenal. It was young Matt Damon. Danny DeVito, John Voight, Claire Danes. It was a lot of fun to watch. And it, it really, he, took, he, took, he filmed it. He's obsessive about editing. He can never let a movie go. And they finally said, you got to give us the movie. And they released it one week before Titanic. <laughs> 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 it took it, uh, oh, 10 years to finally get into the black. But it was really bad uh, timing. Yes, sir. The story is a pay- how was a painted house, the publishing history of a painted house. Uh, I owned the magazine, the Oxford American, for 10 years, and uh, almost broke me, okay? Um, but I bought it to help a friend, and to really boost sales, uh, I serialized a painted house in six installments in uh, the magazine over the course of a year, and it still lost money. But by the time, uh, by the, time uh, the fourth or fifth installment was published, Doubleday had seen the book, the installments, and they wanted to publish it. I wasn't sure they wanted to publish it. I was just kind of playing around with the magazine.
1: That's funny because I was sure they wanted to publish it.
0: <laughs> but it's, thank you, it's done, it's done very well. Uh, one, it's one of my favorites. It's a, it's a book with no lawyers. <laughs> it's a childhood memoir, and that, that's a, it's very autobiographical. Yes, ma'am. Don't give away the ending. Okay. 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 No, she didn't. She didn't. Just do you debate the ending? Not this one. I I knew the ending. I knew the ending, but, but it's not, it's not uncommon to have uh, two endings and I've actually written two before to see uh, how they would fly with uh, Renee. First of all, and maybe the people in New York. Um, So the partner has a a really unexpected ending and the worst hate mail I received still is uh, because of the partner. Uh, and I, and I mean, see, it, c- it still comes in. Some guy will read the book in New Zealand in a paperback, you know, the partner and get so angry, uh, that he'll write me a letter, you know, and I'm, I want to say, look, it's, the book's 20 years old. Get a life. Uh. <laughs> yes, sir. The question is my Oxford days and hanging around square books. We moved there. We got married in Oxford. We were just out of school at Ole Miss. Uh, I just finished law school. And, uh, and so we always loved the place. Loved it. It's a great town still is and so we moved there in 1990 when i stopped my legal career and i wanted to write full-time we moved to oxford and built our dream home and i thought with that you know with that, with that paramount money uh and and we thought we'd be there forever but back then willie morris was still the writer in residence at Ole miss barry han was teaching writing at Ole miss larry brown had just broken out uh you know as a fiction writer and um and they, they, the, the signings were almost every day so there was a, all, always writers coming through and we would hang out at the bookstore and um and, and hanging out with these guys i heard them talk about book tours and and how bad they were or how much trouble you get into on a book tour <laughs> with, with those guys and uh so i was i was always wary of, of the notion of uh touring and uh, and so I, I didn't that's one reason i gave it up what about you guys? Do you tour extensively?
1: Uh, yeah, I do. Did you drink extensively? I, I'm so curious because I knew those three guys very well. And this is kind of personal. You, uh, I, have, <laughs> I have never seen alcohol. I will never forget being out with Willie Morris one night and having him pour 151 into a half a glass of red wine and bolting it.
0: I've never done that. Uh, <laughs> Glad that's all I wanted to know. Just I, I thoroughly enjoy wine. Uh but those three guys. That,
1: I mean that in their prime. That was a Willie scene, Morris, man. Mary
0: Hannah, and, and Larry Brown were in a league of their own. They were. Uh,
1: but but even hanging out with them for the night, even if you didn't drink, it kind of glowed yeah. off of you.
0: How much do you drink, John? Yeah.
2: <laughs> my uh My best friend at Sewanee was a guy who grew up in Lynchburg named Jack Daniels. <laughs>
1: You couldn't, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be rude, but you couldn't talk about those three men at that time and not think about that, because that's really what that story was about in large part. Oh, yeah. And Um, what hanging out in Oxford was about in large part. Faulkner set the stage.
0: Yeah, and and, uh, I've been to a lot of those parties when I left early, because it was getting ugly. Uh, Yes, sir the question deals with uh, do female Southern writers get the acclaim, like Flannery O'Connor, Carson McCullers, Harper Lee, do they get the same acclaim that the men do? Um, you want to take that one?
1: Not particularly.
0: <laughs> it was a question for you. uh, uh both. But, but, no, it's both of us. So. No, they don't get the attention and acclaim. The Eudora Welty, uh, the, the, she didn't get what Faulkner got. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to suggest why. I'm sure gender has a lot to do with it. Uh, but, um, I'm really drowning here. You want to help Okay, out, gender has, uh,
1: gender might have something to do with it, but also what you put out has a lot to do with it. So, Faulkner's body of work was enormous, and Eudora Welty's was quite small, in large part because she took care of her mother for the 20 prime writing years of her life, and then was really struck down by arthritis. Carson McCullough's Flannery O'Connor, great illness- Uh, died young and a very small body of work. So I would say that it would be hard to hold a body of work like Faulkner up against a body of work like Kate Chopin, who, you know, had no body of work. It was like a Harper Lee. That's not a body of work. So that's a, it's a very different set of circumstances. And I'm, I'm all for talking about gender discrepancies and, how unfair things could be, but that I think it doesn't even out. It's, you want to, you want
2: to jump it's in? Very, it, it's also, and used a wonderful word, which is circumstance. Um, if it weren't for Malcolm Cowley putting out something called the portable Faulkner, we wouldn't be asking the question. Um, you know, he wrote and wrote and wrote in obscurity and had, a uh, the good luck of having a, a book put out that led to the Nobel prize and, mm-hmm. Things tend to work out after that. Um, uh, and so um, I think about, I've always wanted to write an essay about this. Uh, the writers who are rediscovered by the, the, the landmark review, Don Powell was brought back. Uh, Barbara Pym was brought back by David Cecil. Uh, Don Powell by Gore Vidal.
1: Um, Anne Beatty is doing, Serenity just told me this, Anne Beatty is doing the um, Modern Library? The Modern yeah. Library edition of Peter Taylor. Yes, because who's reading Peter Taylor anymore?
2: Right, right. So, uh, so the good news of—I don't know if it—but posthumous reputation can be affected if if people are devoted to the work itself.
0: Faulkner was out of print when he won the Nobel Prize in 1950. You could you couldn't you couldn't find a Faulkner novel anywhere for sale in in Oxford, or, you know, or anywhere else. He was out of print. And then he made a little money later with the portable Faulkner. Yeah. There's a great story uh, after he won the Nobel Prize. The city of Oxford constructed a new uh, water tower, and they in a city council meeting the motion was made to put on the water tower, f- Oxford, Mississippi, home of William Faulkner. That was the motion. It died for lack of a second. <laughs>
2: You can
1: also ask yourself. I would love to know how many people have read a Harper Lee book, a Flannery O'Connor story, um, uh, a member of the Wedding, versus how many people have actually read Faulkner. A lot of people talk, but you oh, know those books
2: are hard, man. I'll, I'll 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 play the honesty card. I find it most of it virtually unreadable. Uh, who, who? Faulkner. I really do. I, I I'm I, I I'm a philistine. I'm I'm sorry. I apologize. I'd go to the cross for Robert Penn Warren, but Faulkner I find uh, mystifying. Well,
1: and I have to say I've read it, and it, I'm I'm it's it's hard. Light in August, man. Light in August. Feel good Faulkner. So much fun. You will feel so good about yourself, everybody. Don't leave this store tonight without ordering a copy because we don't actually have 200 here in the
2: store. With an introduction by Ann Patchett. <laughs> yes,
0: ma'am. Who was Nate in the Testament based... Uh, um, well, he, was, he wasn't based on anyone. He was, uh, he was just a fictional character. He was, he was uh, You know, the protagonist in the novel who had a lot of problems and was sent to, to the jungles of Brazil to find a missionary because she had just inherited... Uh, a lot of money, and um, no, he he was not based on any real person. Yes, sir. Once I get the story in, and, uh, and I and it stays around for a while, uh, and most of them don't. Um, but once I really like an idea, and it, it you know it can hit tomorrow out of nowhere, and it could be the next book, or it may take ten years to you know fester. Uh, but once I ha- once I like the idea. I'll start outlining. When you write suspense and mystery and you know crime stories, you you better know where you're going, or you because you may have to drop off things along the way, or you may I tend to I tend to have too many complicated subplots spinning all at one time, too many balls in the air. And by outlining the whole book, um, you see the whole thing. It's, it's not any fun. You know, I'd rather be writing. But you see the whole story, and you really know where you're going, and you never get lost. John Irving is one of my favorite writers, and he says, he's, he's, quoted, he's been quoted as saying, he writes the last sentence before he writes the first. I'm not that smart, but I, I know the last scene before I write the first one. Yes, ma'am. Am I still based in Mississippi? Uh, we moved to Virginia 23 years ago. We, we left Oxford to live in Charlottesville for one year to get away and kind of hide and and regroup, and, and uh, that was 23 years ago. Charlottesville is a beautiful place to live. We're very lucky. Yes, sir. <laughs> where, where am I on the next novel? Yeah, it's done. Uh... Would you have a title? You know what? Asshole. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you guys pick up the pace. Come on. What are you waiting on? Burn, Washington, burn. <laughs> in uh, January, I dropped Camino Island uh, onto my publisher's desk, and they had no idea it was coming. I thought it would be fun just to upset their first week in January to <laughs> change their whole plans for the whole year. They were elated, obviously, uh, and so they, you know, we, 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 we cut a deal. Uh, they told me then that pub date was going to be June 6th for Camino Island. I figured it'd be something like that. So I had plenty of time to write, the, to write the legal thriller. And I got real busy in January, March, February, April, and even May and finished it by June the 1st. And um, the story- What store- are
1: we doing with our life? <laughs> I
2: know, I just, it's, it's the Jack Daniels. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's about uh, a year ago, I saw an article in, in, in The Atlantic. It was called um, The Great Law School Scam- and the story is about for-profit law schools uh, and how they're funded by huge sums of debt taken on by students who really probably shouldn't be in law school. But nobody, nobody's watching, okay? So they borrow, you know, a quarter of a million dollars and pay to these for, for-profit law schools owned by hedge funds who take the money in excessive tuition. It's, it's a racket, okay? But I read the story and I said, I can't let this go. And so, it, you know, I played around with it for a while. The story takes place in Washington, D.C., contemporary times, uh, with three students who are are third-year law students. They have a ton of debt. They have a worthless degree. They have no jobs. They can't pass a bar exam. And so they say, screw it. We're checking out, and we're going to get revenge. And that's the story. Oh, I love that. (laughs) uh... All right, one more question. We're out of time. Yes, ma'am. Do I fictionalize real people in my novels? Um, Yes. There's only one real person that I've ever really... um, uh, You may remember in A Time to Kill, Jake's sidekick is a a big, bad, mean, crazy, colorful divorce lawyer named Harry Rex. And uh, Harry Rex is based on a guy, a former friend who is now an acquaintance, uh, who... (laughs) And that's the kind of guy he was. He, I, I, I nailed him, all right? Actually, he's still a friend. He thought it was funny. I told him when the book came out, I said, look, I've kind of used you in this novel, and I've, and I've described you just the way you really are. And he said, I'll sue. <laughs> 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 then he said, no, he said, write anything you want to write. Write anything you want to write. I think it's funny. Uh, but it's not really smart to do that at this level because, again, it goes back to the lawsuit thing. Yeah. So I can't do it.
1: Um. John Meacham, John Grisham, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. Thank you,
0: Ann. Thank you.
1: Uh, Thank all of you. We appreciate it so much. Uh, Let me just tell you guys, you're going to walk out the front of the store. We're going to walk out the back, and this is good night. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Ann. Thanks to my guest, Ann Patchett and John Meacham and to the staff here at Parnassus and all the great customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work, and thanks to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week, On the Road with Book Tour.